0: Good morning everyone. Very warm welcome again to Charlotte Chapel. It's good to see you all here this morning. It's good how everybody, almost everyone made it ten minutes early. We maybe should do this regularly and then we could start on time. And I could get on at 11.35 instead of much later. Tell the students to give up their small ambitions and come eastward to preach the Gospel of Christ. These words were attributed to Francis Xavier, the Spanish pioneering missionary, a man whom the Roman Catholic Church claims was instrumental in the conversion of more Christians than anyone since the Apostle Paul. In 1993, a modern missionary statesman, Michael Griffiths of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, wrote a book challenging students in our generation to do the same thing. The title of the book is, Give Up Your Small Ambitions. Such a challenge, in the words of the founder of the modern missionary movement, William Carey, to expect great things from God, attempt great things for God, is surely one that should inspire any follower of Jesus Christ. And surely it resonates with our modern culture, which seems to be trying to live out the prediction made by the pop artist Andy Warhol in the 60s that in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Of course, we know it's not really going to happen for everyone. For only one person out of the tens of thousands who entered is going to finally win the X Factor. If you want to know who is going to win it, I will tell you, but not in this sermon. But even that new star in the pop firmament may well burn out, perhaps a little longer than 15 minutes. But what about Christian ambition? Christian ambition. Here's a note of caution from uh, a book that we've been recommending, a book of sermons preached by the American pastor Philip Ryken, on the book of Jeremiah that we've been following through together. Sure what well, that noise was, but don't worry about it. Is so, there something to be switched off? Is it the organ? That's a good idea. Ah. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Here's what Rykin said, and listen carefully because I think his words will shock you as they shock me. If you are waiting to do some great thing, you may be wasting God's time. Most Christians will never do anything great. Now, I'd be surprised if that's been said many times from the pulpit of Charlotte Chapel. But the question in a church like ours, which believes that what we teach and preach should come from God's Word, the Bible, we need to ask, does the Bible support such a statement, a controversial statement, that most Christians will never do anything great? That's what I want us to think about this morning with God's help. And to do that, we're going to turn to a chapter in Jeremiah on which Racken bases his convictions. As we continue our series, Living in Hope. Now, if you've been with us for this series, you're used to, at this point was reading up to two chapters and for in the next ten minutes reading a long reading. Today, uh, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Uh, I only have five verses. Doesn't mean the sermon will be proportionately that short, of <laughs> <is> it? <laughs> title, Racken took the best title, I think. Uh, He entitled his sermon on this chapter, Attempt Small Things for God. Uh, I've adapted the words that we heard earlier from Francis Xavier and Michael Griffiths. My title this morning is, Give Up Your Great Ambitions. So turn with me then to Jeremiah 45. Let's read first of all and then see what God wants to say to us this morning. You'll see the NIV has added a little preface to tell us what it's about, a message to Baruch. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told Barak son of Neriah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim son of Josiah king of Judah after Barak had written on a scroll the words Jeremiah was then dictating. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says to you Barak. You said, woe to me, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm worn out with groaning and find no rest. The Lord said, say this to him. This is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the land. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. This is God's Word. Notice before we come to the meat of it, that this chapter is out of place chronologically in time. If you've been with us on this series, you'll know that chapter 39 describes the fall of Jerusalem when the Babylonian army marched in around the year 587 BC by our later uh, later calculations. Uh, The events that followed, we've been looking at together. And chapter 44 ends up with Jeremiah, the prophet, and his friends being carted off south down to Egypt. Not that they wanted to be there. And the chapter ends with the prophet warning them that they cannot escape God's judgment by going to Egypt, and that Egypt, rather than being a place of safety from the Babylonians, is a place where they will be humbled by the Babylonians who will march into Egypt. But then we come to chapter 45 and suddenly the events flip back 20 years. Look what it says. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told barat Neriah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, that's around 20 years previously, 604-605 BC. Now, we're going to look later on why why it is placed here. Some scholars think uh, that that whoever put Jeremiah together just got mixed up and put it in the wrong order. I don't think that's the case and there's no manuscript evidence for that that I'm aware of. We'll come back to that later. But let's just focus first of all on what is said in these five verses. Look carefully. Once again, the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah the prophet. It's a message given through Jeremiah from the Lord but instead of it being a message for the nation of Judah, as previously, or as we'll see, God willing, to other nations in the remaining chapters of the book, this is the word of the Lord for an individual person. A man named Barak, son of Neriah. It's a message given through Jeremiah from the Lord to Barak. While nations are at war, while empires rise and fall, While populations are decimated and deported, the Lord God of heaven still speaks to individual people. And as we discover, he not only speaks to people individually, but he hears individuals. For what the Lord says to Barak is in response to his grievance. Barak has a complaint, which he expresses. And the Lord sends a message to answer him. Now, this should surely be an encouragement to every individual here this morning. That the God, the Lord of heaven and earth, on a day when we remember the terrible events of war and those who have suffered, that God cares for the individual who is wrestling with the implications and the issues. This week, a Scottish mother finally got answers in court to her grievances about the death of her son in Iraq. But it took us three and a half years. Is there a higher court that hears our grievances? Does God hear? Does God care? Does God answer? Jeremiah assures us that the answer is a resounding yes. So let's now look more closely, or or perhaps more precisely, let's listen in on this conversation between Barak, this man, and the Lord. Let's start with Barak himself. And I simply want to suggest to you, here is a man with a grievance against God. A grievance against God. And his grievance has two components. First of all, we see his distress. And then we see the reason for it, which is his disappointment. First of all, Barak's distress. Look at how he's described in verse 3. The Lord says to Barak, Barak, you probably thought I wasn't listening. This is not in the text. But you said. See, even when you're not praying out loud to the Lord, even when you're not saying your official prayers, the Lord hears what you're saying. Especially what you're saying about Him. You said, Woe to me! The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm worn out with groaning and I find no rest. Verse 3. Now, you can see the kind of extent of Barak's distress. First of all, it is Physical. Talks about my pain. Can't be sure if he had some direct physical injury or illness. Whether he's a victim of painful circumstances. But added to this, there is emotional distress. He says, my sorrow has been added to my pain. It's not just that he's in pain. His emotions have been affected. He's very sad about it. But perhaps worst of all, his distress is spiritual. Notice what he says. The Lord has added Sorrow to my pain. He doesn't attribute his distress Hamlet-like to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. No, he believes in God. Not just any God, but the one whom he knows to be Lord of all, of all nations and all people. His name Barak may mean blessed by God, but he isn't living up to his name. For he believes that the Lord isn't living up to his promise. And this is what makes his distress all the more acute. For by his words, he is questioning the Lord and asking, Why have you done this, Lord? Why have you added sorrow to my pain? There seems to come no answer. So now he's at the point of total exhaustion. I am worn out with groaning and find no rest. In his little book on Jeremiah, the American preacher and pastor, Warren Wisby, comments, It is the cry of exhausted, unrequited faith which has run great risks, but without any good response from God. Now, before we move on, let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever reached that point in your experience as a believer? If you're a Christian this morning, or are you at that point right now? It's easy to hide behind a facade. It's easy in a church like this to come along with the crowd and to smile and sing and to go through all the motions. But in your heart of hearts, you're distressed. And it's possible because some of us have been there to end up just feeling totally exhausted and worn out by distress. Take it from my personal experience. Take it certainly from my experience as a pastor trying to pass the people who are in this position. It's a very hard thing to admit it. Because we put on this sort of evangelical smile and present all is well. But some of us this morning, I believe, are in distress. Spiritual distress. Are you a Christian in distress? Distress. If so, you need to try, and what the pastor tries to do, and the good friend who's a Christian or a counselor, whatever name you call them, is it's no good just looking at the distress. You've got to try and work out your own mind, and it's hard to do for yourself. Take it from me. Even if you're a pastor, it's hard to be objective about yourself in these circumstances, but you need a friend, a pastor, or someone who can sit with you and try and uncover what is the reason why you're feeling like this. And that's sometimes hard to focus on when your eyes are blurred with tears and hard to express when your voice is worn out through crying, groaning. Now in Barrack's case, the reason for his distress was his disappointment. And you need to look more closely at what the Lord says to him to find this out. First of all, notice that Barak is a man with great ambitions. If you know the history of Jeremiah and the Old Testament, Barak was a man who came from a very prominent family in the kingdom of Judah, in God's nation. His grandfather, Marcia, had been governor of Jerusalem, great city. found that in chapter 32, verse 12. If you're making notes, it's in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 8. His brother, Sariah, was a high-ranking official, in the court of the king. It's in chapter 51, verse 59. So, here's this man from this very prominent family in the nation. Great things were expected of him, and he expects great things himself. What career path will he choose? He chooses to ally himself with Jeremiah the prophet. And he becomes his personal scribe who records and writes down what Jeremiah says for posterity. He does more than that, as we'll see. Why does he make this choice? Well, I would suggest to you because he's a man of integrity. He's a godly man. He knows that the nation is in a mess. He knows there is a moral decline. He knows that what Jeremiah is saying is right. He knows that Jeremiah speaks an authentic word from God. We can't be sure exactly when he joined Jeremiah, but he's around about the same age probably. So I would suggest to you that he he began to ally himself with Jeremiah in the early days of Jeremiah's career. And if you've been in the series, you'll know that when Jeremiah began his career, their contemporary was this wonderful king, Josiah, who called the nation back to the worship of God when they uncovered the word of God in the temple. In Christian terms, You'd call it revival time. It looked like things were going great. And I imagine Barak was involved in this kind of revival ministry alongside Jeremiah. And things were looking wonderful. And and people were outwardly turning to God. The temple was suddenly full. The idols had been pulled down. The false priests had been banished. I would suggest to you that Barak had great and noble ambitions. He wanted to be part of what God was doing. Friends, don't we all? If you're a Christian, are you not dissatisfied with the state of what's happening in our nation? Are you not dissatisfied with the church and believe that God needs to do a reviving, refining work among us? But sometimes it doesn't work out the way you expect. Some of you who are older, my age and older, you can look back on your, on your lives as believers. Can you not look back on your ministry and see times when it looked as though things were going to happen? God was going to work in power. People began to be converted. Some of you younger ones don't know about that, but keep praying for it. But what happened to Barak was Josiah was tragically killed in battle. And his son Jehoiakim, his son Jehoiakim took the nation right back in the opposite direction. All the reforms that his father had introduced were turned around. Back to immorality. Back to idolatry. Back to opposition from the word of God. And then Jeremiah and anyone associated with him, well, their reputations were dragged through the mud. Even their lives became under threat. And this is the direct context as we come to chapter 45. Notice what it says. This is what Jeremiah the prophet told Barak son of Neriah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. After Barak had written on a scroll the words Jeremiah was then dictating. If you've been with us for this series, I think it was James Anderson who preached very powerfully on chapter 36. You remember the story. If you've if you got a Bible, it might be worth just turning back to chapter 36. Just look what it says page 798 if you've got a pew bible in the fourth year this is the event itself in the fourth year of Jehoiakim son of Josiah king of Judah this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord take a scroll write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now wow bet that took a long time Jeremiah recalled all these prophecies over 20 years, more. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Barak son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Barak wrote them on a scroll. Here he is writing down, Hebrew text, carefully, accurately, And then Jeremiah says to Barak, listen, there's a problem here, I'm not allowed to go to the temple, so you take the scroll, go off to the temple in Jerusalem, stand in a prominent place, and as the worshippers come in, you read out all these prophecies of judgment. Maybe they'll turn and listen. It's a tragic story. The people who heard it were absolutely alarmed. News came to the king's council who heard about it. They called Barak in and said, read it to us, we need to hear what the Lord is saying. And when they heard it, they were alarmed. And they said to Barak, listen, you better hide, because when the king hears about this, your life will be in danger, you and Jeremiah. Off he goes. The king calls for the scroll. And as they read it out, you remember the story... He has a little penknifes in his winter palace. Uh, th- th- there's a burner there, brazier. And as they read out bits of the scroll and wind, he cuts off a few inches at a time and throws them in the fire. Now, this is when the word of the Lord came to Barak. When he'd done this. I imagine it was a pretty discouraging experience. You see, in human terms excuse the analogy in the church like this, it looked as though Barak had backed the wrong horse. What now of his great ambitions? Well, of course, they turned into failed hopes. It looked like a lost cause. You know what Jeremiah did when he heard about this? What the king had done? He said to Barak, right, let's start again. He got another long scroll and said to Barak, Write it all out again. I don't know whether that's the second time that's referred to in chapter 45, but I can imagine Barak was pretty discouraged when he had to write all these prophecies out once more. It looked like his great ambitions had turned to failed hopes. And I would suggest to you this morning, and I'm speaking particularly, if you're not a Christian, I'll talk to you a little later a bit, If you're a Christian this morning, I would suggest to you that the greatest and most devastating experience for the Christian is failed spiritual ambitions. Failed spiritual ambitions. When all you believed, all you hoped, all you prayed for turns to dust. When revival fails to materialize, when promising hopes in the church are snuffed out. When evil seems to triumph. When bad people seem to do their best and get away with it. When the tide of public opposition turns against the godly and in a national context often under the guise of religion. It's a situation we may yet face in this nation, I would suggest to you. It happened in nations in the past. It happened In Hitler's Germany, before, during the Second World War, I'm grateful to a member of our congregation sitting up there, David Reimer from New College, for pointing out to me the connection of this particular chapter with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, theologian, who was imprisoned for opposing Hitler in his regime. And he had a particular affinity, you may be interested to know this, I was fascinated by it, he had a particular affinity with Jeremiah 45, did you know that? In his letters and papers from prison, one writer uh, comments, Bonhoeffer identifies several times with Barak. This is what he said, I can never get away from Jeremiah 45, Bonhoeffer wrote. It became for him a a sort of theological shorthand for letting go of one's life in the face of God's demands. So, we turn then from Barak's grievance against God, to the Lord's response, because we need to know what the Lord says if we're in that situation. That's what we always want to do when we hear God's word. He never leaves us just in the situation, totally exhausted, distressed, worn out, had enough. God speaks to us if we will only hear and respond. So notice, secondly, the Lord's response, an answer to ambition. And again, just to help you and remind you of this, we can summarise the Lord's answer to Barak under two words, the Lord's rebuke and then the Lord's reassurance. As I read this, the Lord's rebuke, I kind of thought to myself, if, if Barrack had been in Charlotte Chapel and had said these things, how would I have responded to him as a pastor? I, I think I'd have been a bit less direct. I think I'd have tried to empathize with him and say, well, Barrack, you know how you're feeling and I'm really sorry you're so distressed and in pain and... I'd at least begin with that, even if I had something negative to say later. But the Lord goes straight to the heart by directly challenging Barak and addressing his problem. You see, Barak's problem is this. It is selfish ambition. The Lord says to Barak, heard what you were saying? Should you be seeking great things for yourself? You see, The issue is not great ambition. The issue is selfish ambition. But the problem is we get the two mixed up so easily, don't we? It's a problem which besets Christians. Racken again comments very helpfully. Some Christians think the important thing is not that God's will gets done, but that they get to do it. They are happy for God to get the glory, as long as they can share in some of the limelight how hard it is to attempt great things for God without attempting them also for self. And what is true for all Christians, I have to tell you, in case you have any illusions about this, is particularly true for those of us in Christian leadership. Get a group of ministers together at a fraternal. Rodney's laughing because he knows what's coming. He's going to talk about bit And after the small talk, or even before the small talk, someone will say to you, so how many people are coming to Charlotte Chapel these days? Hmm. How many are getting at your church? Hmm. How many new students have you got? Hmm. Where do you think they're all going these days? Ah, well, that's students for you now. Hmm. It's an issue for Christians and churches, particularly in whom and through whom God has worked in the past. And that's why I want to say to you, as we prepare, if the Lord tarries, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Charlotte Chapel, we need to be absolutely sure that God gets the glory. And that our theme song is, as we've already sung, to God be the glory, great things He has done. Not great things he and we have done. We need the spirit of John the Baptist. You remember when John's ministry was coming to a conclusion, people came to him and said, John, your disciples are leaving and following this new man, Jesus. And John said, He must become greater, I must become less. If you grew up with the Authorized Version, He must increase, I must decrease. Now, that's the problem. And it's no easy matter to solve it, for it requires direct and decisive action, as Barak learned. The solution to selfish ambition is to die to ambition. The Lord says, should you then be seeking great things for yourself, seek them not. Cut it out, Barak. You see, The way of Christ is the way of the cross. And as we've been reminded in our evening series in Luke's Gospel, this is the daily exercise of the disciple. What disciples do when they have daily exercises? What do you do every morning when you get up? What do you do especially every Sunday after church? Especially if it went well, or somebody told you it went well. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Luke nine twenty three to 24 Write it over your bed or somewhere prominent. Die daily. Die to ambition. Die to self. Let me speak to those of you who aren't Christians. Yeah, I would encourage you to follow Jesus Christ with all I can. He died to reconcile you to himself. He wants to give you a hope and a purpose in life. But I want to tell you, as he told you, it is no easy matter to follow Christ. You need to count the cost, as we thought last week on Sunday evening, if you're going to follow Christ, because it means taking it across, cross, dying to self, dying to ambition. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it literally cost him his life. When he was executed by hanging on April the 9th, 1945, just three weeks before the prison camp he was in was liberated. That's a tough one, isn't it? See, if it had been a Hollywood film, it would have been liberated just before, you know, the hangman put the noose around his neck. This is not Hollywood, friends. This is reality. The ends don't always tie up neatly in our lives. But for all who would truly follow Christ, It means death for the path of discipleship means death to self and selfish ambition. So I ask you this morning particularly if you're involved in any Christian ministry particularly if God has used you in the past particularly if you're a young person who has great ambitions to serve Christ I thank God for you. But resolve this issue because the only alternative is pride and pride will destroy God's work. Humble you. But you see, it's the only way to life, And we see this in the closing words of the Lord. The Lord turns, he doesn't just leave it there with this rebuke. He he ends with a word of reassurance. The Lord's reassurance. You see, Barak thinks, Lord, what is going on here? I've served you with this man Jeremiah for 20 years. I've written out your word. I've put my life on the line, Lord. And now... All I hope for is he's lost. And the Lord says, no, no. You're not missing out. The Lord tells him, judgment is coming for everyone. He reminds Barak of the words he must have written so many times in Hebrew with those strong verbs again and again. Words of judgment spoken through Jeremiah right when he was called by the Lord. The Lord says, say this to him. This is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I've built. I'll uproot what I've planted throughout the land. Barak, you happen to be living in days of judgment. That's the way it is. And there are implications for everyone. Verse 5. For I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. There is universal judgment coming, friends. But there are exceptions and Barak is one of them. Salvation is promised for Barak. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Like that wonderful African servant we met earlier in the series, Ebed Melech. Barak is promised the Lord's personal protection. The Lord literally says to him, I will give your life as a spoil of war. Not destroyed by the enemy, but preserved by the Lord in the NIV application, commentary on Jeremiah, Andrew Dearman writes, like Ebed-Melech, Barak has received his life as a gift, so that in return, he may serve the Lord in difficult circumstances. And that I would suggest, is why chapter 45 comes here, not after chapter 36. You see, Many people believe, and I'm pretty sure about it, but can't be certain, that Barrack not only recorded the prophecies of Jeremiah, but he was the kind of editor of this book that bears the name of Jeremiah. I don't think he made a mix-up when he put Jeremiah 45, 20 years out of place. You see, when he records this, where's Barak? He's still with Jeremiah. Is in Egypt. it has been carted off there. He didn't want to go there. Jeremiah told him it's the wrong place to go. And when Jeremiah gave his prophecy, do you know what the people said? Do you remember in the series what the people said? They said to Jeremiah, it's that Barak fella that's been inciting you to prophesy these kind of things. It's rubbish. We don't believe a word of it. And Barak puts it here, I think. To say to them, as it were, they wouldn't have put it this way listen, I've seen it all before. I've got the t shirt. I've heard it all before. I sorted this issue out 20 years ago when the Lord said to me, You are seeking great things for yourself, seek them not. Ah, I don't know how this story will end. I don't know what's going to happen in Egypt. In fact, no one knows what happened to Barak in Egypt. No one knows what happened to Jeremiah. There are all sorts of traditions. No one can be sure. The Bible doesn't even tell us. But Barak says, I'm content because the Lord has promised me salvation. And I've sorted out the issue of seeking great ambition. In the midst of judgment and all, which will surely come even to those in Egypt, he continues to prove and proclaim that the Lord's promise still stands 20 years later. For I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Now, we're almost coming to a conclusion. But I simply ask you this morning, have you resolved this issue? Have you given up those great ambitions for yourself? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Do you have the assurance this morning, God's faithful promise, that you'll be saved? And as David reminded the children, it was livid to hear him say it because he didn't know what I was going to say, that you'll be saved by grace alone. He used to sing that lovely hymn Saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind, and Jesus died. For me. See, when all is said and done, that's the only place you can stand. Or are you still striving to do great things in your own strength for yourself, seeking great things for yourself? You're doomed to failure. Deal with the issue. Die to self. Now, the real conclusion. This will take me a few minutes, that's all. In a couple of weeks' time, you'll be able to buy a copy of this big book. book. For only £10. It's a wonderful book. I'm making my way through it. This is an advanced copy given to me by Ian, very kindly. It's written by our former secretary for many years, Henri Elder, Ian Balfour. It's the story of Charlotte Chapel for our anniversary next year. The title of the little book that preceded it, Revival in Rose Street. It highlights the remarkable events that occurred a hundred years ago in this church. Not this building, but on this site. When revival came to this church in a remarkable way and you read the story it just really is an amazing story of real revival. People three months praying. Doors were never closed. And then repeated a year later. Ian, get the book and read it. And the book naturally as Ian says highlights those who were at the heart of this. The minister under whose ministry it occurred, Joseph Kemp. Uh, those that followed him, Dr. W. Graham Scroggie, J. Sidlow Baxter, Alan Redpath, many others. On a recent visit to America, I was amazed how many people I met, Christians there, who knew all the names and the people. He said, Charlotte Chappell. I said, said, oh, Charlotte Chappell. But there are other names featured in this book. In fact, there are many names, as Ian himself says, that aren't featured in this book. But there are many people, and there are some in this book, whose names are not household names. And they never will be, at least on earth. Few American Christians, maybe few of you until you read the book, have heard of Andrew Urquhart. But Andrew Urquhart was a key figure in the revival that occurred. Like Barrack, he was a scribe. He was the church secretary for many years. When Charlotte Chapel was down to a handful of people, he resisted the offer to sell the site as a furniture store, and he called the people to pray. His son relates his famous story. We've heard it many times in this pulpit. How, as they entered the corner of Rose Street here, his son, who later succeeded him secretary, his father would say, "Son, can you see the crowds queuing up to get in?" He thought he was seeing things. He was. By faith. Great things which the Lord did through seemingly small things which men like him did faithfully. I began with that controversial quote from Philip and Maybe some of you are still thinking, what is it all about? If you are waiting to do some great thing, you may be wasting God's time. Most Christians will never do anything great. Let me read on what he wrote after that. If you're waiting to do some great thing, you may be wasting God's time. Most Christians will never do anything great. Should you be seeking great things for yourself, seek them not. Jeremiah 45, verse 5. Instead, give your best to God in the small things. Be a good worker. Lead one person to Christ. Raise a godly family. Support a missionary. The way to seek the glory of God is in the little things of the Christian life. And who knows if, and it will only happen if. You're faithful in small things. Who knows what great things God may choose to do through you. Which only time and sometimes eternity may reveal. You see, Barak gave up his great ambitions for himself. And God used him greatly. In fact, here's something that probably few of you knew. You know that Barak is probably the only person in the Bible whose thumbprint we have on record a seal has been uncovered and discovered his personal seal with his name on it and there's a thumbprint in the corner of it Picture it on the screen but I don't know whether you can certainly can't see the thumbprint but apparently you can see a thumbprint in the corner and people believe it was his personal seal almost certainly it's his thumb in the corner of it think of that whether it is or not doesn't really matter what ma- does matter is that the Lord used Barak to preserve the prophecies of Jeremiah and to edit the book which bears his name. God used Barak to give us this valuable part of God's word which we can read and study today for our prophet. So I encourage you today. Give you great ambitions. Serve God in the small things. And in the last analysis, whether it's small or great, rest on God's promises. For God is faithful. Let's pray together.